Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another Hamilton Wealth Partners Fund Manager webinar. My name is Kane Barino, and I'm a principal at Hamilton Wealth Partners. I'll begin this webinar by reading a brief advice warning and then introduce our two guest speakers and hand over to them for about 20 minutes. We'll then open up for questions at the end, uh, but feel free to submit any questions in the taskbar below throughout the presentation. So information contained in this webinar has been provided as general advice only. The contents have been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should, before you make any decisions regarding any information, strategies or products mentioned in this webinar, consult your advisor to consider whether that is appropriate having regard to your objectives, financial situations and needs. So today I'm joined by Nicole Connolly and Jonathan Van Vuren from Invest Infrastructure Investment Partners Fund, or IPIF for short. So Nicole has over 20 years experience in the superannuation and funds management industry. Prior to establishing IPIF in 2015, Nicole was a director of alternative assets at Russell Investments and head of alternative investments at Telstra Super, one of Australia's largest corporate superannuation funds. Jonathan also has over 20 years of experience in the infrastructure investment sector. Prior to joining IPIF, Jonathan was the portfolio manager for a $2.5 billion unlisted infrastructure fund with assets in Australia and the UK. I'd now like to hand over to Nicole and Jonathan to give us some background on IPIF, their investment process, how they're dealing with the current COVID environment, and also where they're seeing the sector moving forward. So over to you, Nicole and Jonathan. Great, thank you, Kane. We appreciate the opportunity to come to you direct via webinar uh, today and let you know more about IPIF and how it's how it's performing in these uh, unprecedented times. Um, just as a background to IPIF and how it was established, um, the firm was established about six years ago um, to allow non-institutional wholesale investors uh, access to unlisted infrastructure. Today we have approximately 200 million in funds under management and that's invested in uh, four underlying open-ended infrastructure vehicles which provides exposure to 31. We have approximately 500 underlying investors in the fund. Jonathan and I are equal partners in the business and have very complementary skill sets. Um, as Kane mentioned, my background is in superannuation and asset consulting, um, where I largely provided um, research function in the alternative assets space, and that included unlisted infrastructure. Um, my um, that background is, is well complemented by Jonathan, who has worked in the infrastructure sector for over 20 years, uh, first as an asset uh, infrastructure valuer uh, and then for a, as a portfolio manager for one of the largest global unlisted infrastructure firms um, globally. So I might hand over to John, Jonathan to just give more background in, uh, to, or information on his background and experience. Uh, thanks, Nick. I, I think so, so probably um, my pertinent sort of description would be, um, from my perspective, is a, um, a background in, on the valuation side. What, what are each of you investors really concerned about today in the today's environment is what is the value of my unit in, in IPIF and indeed in unlisted infrastructure, um, particularly about airports, which we'll, we'll come to. 
And I think, um, so having spent 10 years at KPMG corporate finance, sort of grew up in a, in a, in a valuation environment, valuing the likes of these assets for unlisted infrastructure assets for, for, for the likes of AMP, Babcock and Brown at the time, Macquarie, um, and then IFM, uh, Hastings, Colonial, et cetera. So, so have a broad understanding of, of importantly how those valuation processes work. And I think um, the often misunderstood um, robustness of the actual valuation process as it relates to determining the value of, a, of an infrastructure, unlisted infrastructure asset. Um, so spent a lot of time there and then obviously worked directly for a fund manager and then uh, we ran assets and sat on boards as well, for example, that in, in, in situations where you, the board approves the annual budget, which then in turn goes into the, into the valuation, which again is adopted by, uh, by, the, by the likes of IPIF for a, to, to strike a unit price. So I could talk uh, upside down under wet cement about valuation and happy to happy to, to, to take you guys or, or anyone who's interested in a more deeper context. But I think one of the things that really sort of excites us about this portfolio of 31 infrastructure assets is that very issue around the valuation process. And I think what we're seeing is a lower volatility story coming through um, because of the of a, the underlying assets and the robustness around the cash flow, but also the process that, that is wrapped around determining what that's worth. And that's actually a good segue into our philosophy and process. So what we do is adopt a, a bottom-up analysis of all the underlying assets in the portfolios we invest in or are prospectively going to invest in to understand the, the income and capital profile and importantly, the risk uh, to, the, to the income profile of those assets. So question one is, is that risk to the income related to the regulatory profile of the asset? Or is that risk to the uh, asset, um, to the income related to, to volume? Is it volume driven? So it's, it's really about achieving asset diversification as it relates to the risks around the income that each of these assets um, produce and provide. We largely look for mature assets uh, with a long-term operating history or profile, as well as assets with long-term concessions uh, and long-term contracts in place. And it's often these long-term concessions uh, that um, underpins the, the performance of these assets. And, and Jonathan can certainly talk about that in a, in a bit more detail. Our DNA is a, as an investment manager uh, is in the management of these assets uh, in, in unlisted infrastructure, as well as manager research and portfolio construction um, as it relates to our respective um, careers, if you like, and, and, and experience. So really, we bring this into the portfolio construction approach to our investments. Um, the other point is that, I guess, interestingly, if you were to look at these funds on an individual basis and, and invest in any of the underlying funds that we invest to on an individual basis, um, on an individual basis, you're not really going to um, achieve the same level of diversification you actually do require in this asset class. 
the, the funds are often not overly um, populated. They, they typically have between 10 and 15 assets each. Uh, and often they have a large single exposure to one particular asset. So we think this is a, the best way to, to get exposure to an optimal portfolio in this space. Jonathan, I'll hand on over to you for any additional comments on our philosophy and process. Yeah, I, I think um, that really, it, it, Nick's touched on an important point. IPF's probably the most diversified um, unlisted infrastructure platform around. Well, it certainly is in the case of accessing that sort of non-institutional investor. But with 31 assets uh, split sort of um, 60, 40 between, um, you know, air airports, which we'll come to because they'd be the front of mind for, for most of us now, particularly, you know, I'm based in Melbourne and the lockdown, we'll talk to that in due course. But 31 assets, uh, 20 of those of those investments are, are regulated assets, um, the likes of, of, of Transgrid, Sydney Desalination, uh, Electric, Electronet in South Australia, delivering a, a very stable, consistent cash flow that um, is somewhat, um, uh, you know, COVID agnostic, if you like. So, so you know, where the, where the portfolio, and that wasn't by design, no one's designed anything for COVID, obviously, um, but, but you can actually see that with the assets and how they're performing in this environment. Um, and, and in terms of how we look at the portfolio going forward, we, we, we continue to explore assets which um, can, can withstand some of the, some of the shock events uh, that, we, that we're seeing today. And so you know, a little example is we're looking at some of the some some of the telecommunications stuff that's leveraged to 5G. We've got a, a very exciting platform that we're looking at there, and we'll continue to explore uh, opportunities around data centers, fiber, spectrum, and so on, and see how the what we're calling new new infrastructure, or or, or um, it's actually the infrastructure we're all sitting in front of right now using, where some of that can be can be uh, adopted in the portfolio. Is that okay, Nick? Yeah, no, I think that's great. Is, is it a good um, time to perhaps move to how COVID has impacted the current portfolio and the exposure to airports within, yeah. within the fund? No, good, 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 uh, good segue. So 40 cents on the dollar of IPF unit is, is, is airports. Um, we own six of the, the top 10, and it's no surprise that that, that it has impacted us. Back in March, we acted quickly, um, along with the underlying managers. So, so um, we, we've, the, the impairments were around 10 to 15%. Those, those impairments were taken in the March quarter. We spent a lot of time with the, in terms of the impact of COVID in the, in the subsequent quarter to 30 June, talking and working with the valuers around really right-sizing those capital structures to ensure that, I mean, the first thing I think we learned from the GFC uh, was, was where you had facilities and debt facilities and so on, 
in the in that extraordinary um, that that economic crisis, if you like, was to ensure that that capital structure was sound. So in most cases, the the airports, for example, drew down on their on their their various facilities to ensure they had the cash to withstand the the, the coming uh, challenges, um, and all of them have have, have successfully negotiated their, their, their capital structure arrangements with the, the various um, the banks and lenders so that they're in, a, in, a, in good shape for the next 12 to 18 months. In, ter in terms of performance, the first half we had uh, from 30 June uh, or 1 July 9, uh, 19 to 31 December, the fund did around 8.5%. Eight we did a, distributed a 1.8% distribution um, and then in the second half, obviously, we, we've had the, the COVID impact. What, what's happened in, in, in a 12-month, uh, effectively, for the 12-month period, we've had a flat return. So the first half has been offset by the impairments around the airports in particular, which has effectively offset the first half-year performance. So we've had effectively a, a flat return for the, for, the, for the 12 months, which has been... Interestingly, we've, we've still managed to distribute a 4% cash yield over the 12 months. Impairment is slightly higher, um, but it's a neutral return if you think about your unit price over the 12 month period. So that's what we've done in terms of the COVID impact. Uh, moved quickly, worked closely with the managers, worked interestingly closely with the vans given our, our respective experiences. Uh, ensured that those so, so effectively from one July as we as we sit talking today the unit price of IPF and your investment reflects on a forward-looking basis reflects the impairments that were taken um, to, to account for the impact of COVID. Uh, another example is you know we talk about uh, someone asked me well jo Jonathan what about the second wave the, the, the second and third waves are also taken into account as part of those impairments. Uh, and I'll give you an example. In the passenger numbers on a forward-looking basis, as it relates to domestic and international travel, on domestic tra travel, it's assumed in the forecasts, which is ref again reflected in the unit price, that the normalization, so that the, the passenger numbers only return to pre-COVID numbers, in around 23, FY 2023-2024 in the case of domestic. So, so we, we, we assume in, in 21, 22, and until the end of 23 that there'll be, that the passenger numbers will be materially lower than they were pre-COVID. Uh, similarly for international, we're not assuming to return to normal, uh, normal packs out into 2025-26. So, so that wedge of value, if you like, uh, has, been, has been stripped out of the forecast. And so the unit price has been reset. And that's why when we talk to, to, to investors and, and, and prospective investors, we talk about really what we're looking at now is a low point in the valuation cycle following those, following those uh, impairments and lockdowns. It's probably also um, worth adding that in terms of the forecast, the valuers uh, or, or what they've forecast in those numbers, um, they've, they've actually forecast that um, 
they never, as Jonathan mentioned, they never get back to pre-COVID levels and in fact are roughly 10% lower. So they never ever get back to, to the levels we achieved pre-COVID. So I think that's sort of an, an interesting observation and um, uh, it, it kind of, it, it also shows the conservatism that the valuers are adopting here for potentially um, a new way that people will travel going forward. And the reason we, um, with the way we look at the, the airport sectors, we have, a, we have uh, 11 airports across the country, diversification of those airports, but they also have different levers and different drivers of earnings. Um, although they have the regulated aeronautical component, um, they're all they're obviously all driven um, by passenger numbers going through the airports, but they, they, there's a mix of business-related um, rec recreational travel in those airports, um, even, even um, FIFO-type travel for the airports that we hold in WA. And the WA airport exposure not only includes Perth, also includes um, Port Hedland. So, and the other interesting observation that um, we've seen over the last six weeks, in fact, eight weeks, is is the when the managers um, when the when the, these assets were revalued and airports and um, borders can, started to open up, we actually saw some of the uh, Brisbane Airport trade ahead of reforecast numbers. Um, now that was until Melbourne went into lockdown and in second wave, uh, but it, it, it shows that to Jonathan's point earlier that they these numbers do ha have taken into account the potential of second third waves and address the risk that we see in the market today. I think, thanks for that, Nicole and Jonathan. You you touched on the the regulated and unregulated mix of, of the assets. Are you able to maybe expand a bit on why you've taken this position and the risk the risks that are around you know that are present in both regulated and unregulated assets? It's probably thanks, Kane. I think um, it's a it's a really topical and interesting question, but it probably is better to put it as the as as fully regulated or partially regulated assets, um, because the the partially regulated assets we currently have in the portfolio uh, are roughly about fifty percent. So some of these partially regulated assets include airports. Um, so it's where they're, they've got a component of regulated, uh, regulated revenue. Um, we've got 25% um, of the portfolio in fully regulated assets, and they are typically the utilities um, where there's no link to uh, volumes or, or GDP growth. So that's the big that poles and wires in New South Wales, Transgreen, Electronet, Sydney desalination plant and the like. And then the remainder of the portfolio is, um, I think there's roughly, I've got the numbers here, 8% in contracted, long-term contracted assets. And then roughly 13% that are volume, exposed to volume risk. So we'd like to have most of the portfolio, in fact, um, up to you know 70 to 80 percent in the portfolio in partially and fully regulated assets. Um, the, this is where we get certainty of income for a period of time. In the case of the regulated assets, um, they the, the regulator 
an, uh, approves an allowable return for the operator to earn over a three to five year period. So that's the base return you'll get on these assets. Um, and you, typically you earn more than that because they have efficiencies in how they operate uh, and it's, it's typically quite higher. But as an example, um, it, it's usually above 6% as a base. Um, the, yeah, so, so I think that's, that's sort of how we look at the regulated and the unregulated mix. Jonathan, is there anything to add there? Yeah, I would just say um, the other point on, on the regulated, the fully regulated that, that Nick's just covered there, you know, for example, Transcred and, and Sydney Diesel, the, those assets are very typically quite high yielding, um, certainly in the case of, of Sydney Diesel. So we're quite attracted we, to, to that yield. We, we want to balance the growth, the capital growth side as well with delivering a consistent cash yield. And I think, you know, I think 20, 20 is, is shown that we can still deliver a yield in what was fairly extraordinary um, cir 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 economic circumstances. So, so we'll continue to look at where we can, because we know that the profile of our investors, you know, obviously wants that yield component. So we'll continue to, to really try and um, aim to deliver that. Um, I think we're going to see softness in the next 12, 12 to 18 months around the yield side, particularly from the airports. Um, but but it, but that said, uh, those regulated assets will will, will deliver that that yield component, which um, and we'll continue to explore going forward where we can look at at um, at strong yielding underlying uh, investments. Great, thanks for that. Oh, so, did you want to add something, Nicole? Oh, I was just going to say, in the case of Sydney Diesel, it's a good example of where you actually don't have to have it operating for us to for the operators to earn a return. The government pay the operator simply to have it sitting available and ready to use if required. So that's a, it's the beauty of the, some of these assets. That's a good point. Now I've got a, a, a question here from Stuart. He's asked how have airports factored in the risk of fundamental change in the pricing model that, that airlines such as Qantas will seek? So that might be a question for, for you, Jonathan. Yeah, we, um, we, we, we're obviously uh, quite aware of, of, of the Qantas relationship and, and, uh, I can tell you from my experience on the board of Gold Coast Airport, they are a formidable negotiator uh, in terms of uh, having to strike aeronautical agreements with, with the Qantas group. Um, so, so the management teams at the underlying airports are, are very cognizant of, 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 the, um, of the, the potential for, to change those aero agreements to, to something akin to a building block model, which is effectively, I think, where Stuart's question is. Uh, and that's, um, there's no surprise amongst the airport management teams that in terms of how they've priced their, their, their forward-looking uh, re-forecast, if you like, post-COVID, where they've, they've done a shadow, uh, a shadow uh, valuation in terms of what that building block approach looks like in a, in a, I guess, a new, what we'd call it the new world, in terms of having to price agreements with, a, with effectively a a really a major dominant counterparty such as such as Qantas, particularly as it relates to, to Australian airports. So, so short answer is yes. Um, uh, the, the asset management teams are aware of it, very aware of it at, at the underlying airports. The managers that sit around uh, those those underlying asset management teams at say Melbourne Airport or Perth Airport are equally 
um, cognizant of that dynamic, a potential dynamic. Uh, and then thirdly, I think really sophisticated shareholders, institutional shareholders such as, as, as the Future Fund with a 30% stake in, in Perth Airport are also obviously very aware of, of, of the potential shift and what that might do to, to unit prices and values. So they can ensure that the, the forecast that the management teams come up with and in turn pass on to the value account of, of the, the risks of a changed, um, of a changed model with, with, uh, with the airlines. Great, thanks. Just to add to that, that's all right. Just to add to that, Kane, the, the airports, um, there, there's four revenue streams that the airports have. So the regulated aeronautical component, uh, 25%. And there's the uh, retail, and that's retail on the, um, on the, at the airport as well as the property surrounding the airport. So it's retail, property, aeronautical revenues, and car parking as well. So there's four different revenue streams and they each represent about 25%. So the bit that Jonathan was just talking about there was, was the 20, it sits within the 25% aeronautical space. And I think it's, it's fair to say that it all comes back to a simple, a, simple, um, a simple variable from the perspective of an airport valuation and that is passengers. Quite simply, um, passengers drive uh, all the, the four components that Nick just, just outlined. Uh, so ultimately, if, you, if you've got um, you know, a, a sober view about the post-COVID recovery in the airline in passenger numbers, I think that's the most, that's the very much the starting point for, for, for the look forward valuation of, of each of these assets over there. Uh, the 25 year model that they are, are valued under, again, over that 75 year concession. Great. So um, you spoke a bit about the diversification in the portfolio and, you know, some of those newer type assets such as data centers. How do you balance the, you know, the need for that further diversification with the opportunities that you're seeing in, in you know, sectors such as airports and the depressed valuations there? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, look, I think, uh, if, if we were sitting a year ago, a year ago, um, uh, someone approached us to see if we wanted to have a look at, uh, at Hobart Airport, which has been transacted. That was sold by and bought, bought rather, nine times EBITDA. Um, that, was a, that was around August last year. Um, fast forward to where we are today. Um, yes, so, so valuations have come back. There are some very interesting deployment opportunities for IPF. In relation to some of the underlying funds, um, which are which really are quite quite attractive. In fact, there's some interesting direct investment opportunities. Um, but to 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 your point, I think when you're 40 cents on the dollar in terms of portfolio today, uh, Airbus, which we absolutely invest in, I think it was it it, it was and continues to be a, a real value proposition and differentiation for us. I think what we would say at this point is. We're probably at weight. We're comfortable with those positions, um, and indeed, uh, we we would. So so that leads to then what else? Um, and I think again back to the, the thesis of around of, of data of um, of the fundamental shift and and changes that we're seeing in how we conduct our lives, and indeed this whole forum, as we touched on before, 
um, that, that how do we get how do we get some exposures to those new new type of infrastructures? And that's the work we're doing. Um, I think I think what we've got to watch, Kane, is the pricing again. Back to my point, twenty nine times for a year ago for for an airport, um, it would be a different price now. But similarly, we've had this pivot or this lurch to the left-hand side of the boat onto the tech. You can see that through the NASDAQ. So data centers are, pay, are, are trading at significant premiums. Um, we're, seeing, uh, we're seeing fiber and so on. And, and the infrastructure, the wall of money in the unlisted infrastructure world, really um, looking for a place in, in, in some of those, those, I guess, those new infrastructures, which is why we like... Um, the, the, the spectrum product that we're looking at now because we think there's a genuine, a, a, a really A-grade manager who's very experienced in that space. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, I guess, a misunderstood dynamic in terms of the demand and supply. Um, so, so to answer your question, we, we really think portfolio-wise we're in a good place. If we could pick up something higher yielding, which had some sort of regulatory overlay, Domestically great, but we, we continue to explore some of those some of those, um, those those sort of new infrastructure type businesses. And in addition to the diversification you can receive from adding new managers and new opportunities that Jonathan just touched on, diverse, organic diversification that will happen by virtue of our underlying managers buying new assets. So typically, the managers may buy one to two um, in a good year, three new assets per year. And we've certainly seen one of our global managers, uh, the GD Fund, uh, purchase some seaports and rail in the US more recently. So we're seeing the organic growth organic in, in diversification through our existing funds, as well as looking at potential new opportunities. And I think, uh, Kane, just if I could add one more, um, to Nick's point, we, one of the benefits of, of this, this, this IPIF portfolio of 31 individual investments is the actual, and Nick touched on the word, organic growth. So, for example, Transgrid has a, um, has a $1.5 billion CapEx program to fund the interconnector from South Australia um, to, to, uh, to New South Wales. So that, that's, not a, um, that's not a competitive bidding process whereby we're trying to buy a asset like transcript in privatization, being with the likes of, you know, um, whoever the, the various counterparties bidding against each other. That's an existing asset in the portfolio, um, which is deploying incremental capex based on a regulated re uh, return. So there's no bid cost risk. There's no, um, there's no, uh, I guess, a, a competitive auction process other than the, the, the negotiations with the regulator. And so an example of that was, what did IPIF do? We had an opportunity to participate in the capital raise. What we've done, what Nick and I have done is said, well, how do we differentiate ourselves even further? So, so no one can get access to that investment in terms of the UTA opportunity, but let's take a step further. How do we get a co-investment structure in place for, for our underlying, for, for, for the 30 or 40 investors on this call? And we created a vehicle which, which basically had a, had a cost structure of around 33 basis points to enable a, the investors to go direct into that, that, um, that manager to access that organic growth 
uh, in relation to, to, to sort of regulated CapEx deployment. And, and um, another opportunity, if we think about diversification to your question, um, Sydney Diesel has a circa one and a half, two billion dollar CapEx program to double the size of the facility. Um, UTA in our fund, and that that represents uh, you know a, a really terrific opportunity for further deployment. Again, we, we don't have to worry about bid costs. We don't have to worry about acquisition risk and mispricing because we've held that asset for for something like six seven years. It's been held by those funds. So so there's some there's within portfolio, and again, that's what happens when you've got 31 assets across four managers. 80 cents on the dollar directed in Australia and New Zealand, that home bias gives us some, some really good insights of where to look at the diversification um, on, in assets that are really known and understood by, by us and the, and the, and the um, existing managers. Just leading on from that point, talking about new infrastructure, given the need to stimulate the economy, the monetary and fiscal stimulation provided by the federal government. Do you see further nation building infrastructure initiatives that will need private funding? Yeah, there's there's plenty of opportunity for further investment in in infrastructure to to continue to support the growing population that we have and the government through various industry bodies have identified a number of those projects and it's it's close to um, i think the 60 billion 60 to 90 billion of funding required to support these opportunities um, what what's happened in the past that has been really successful is um, what what the new south wales baird government at the time did with the asset recycling program Typically, private investors are less willing to take on the risk of these development infrastructure opportunities because it's usually about building a new road, building a new pipeline, um, building um, a new seaport. So there's, there's, there's a higher risk return trade-off there with that type of infrastructure. And they acknowledge that typical, typically private investors don't want to take that risk. So what they did, the New South Wales Baird government did, was look to privatise that had a yield, a strong yield profile. Um, Transgrid was was the example, um, and then they used the proceeds. And in the case of Transgrid, uh, and John, I correct me if I'm wrong, it was about 13, 14 billion dollars of proceeds from that deal that the government then went on to use for new projects, new roads, new development. So the investors get the benefit of getting exposure to the Transgrid asset. Uh, that asset uh, was purchased by UTA, which is in our portfolio. So our, your investors um, and you, the, 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 you on the call uh, directly benefited fr from that. And then the new funding to support the pipeline that's coming. So there's, um, I, I think it's supported. It depends on which, uh, which government, which side of the political fence each state sits for, for those programs to happen. Um, but there's certainly those opportunities that we expect will come over the next five to 10 years. And, and Kane, to, to, to your question as well, as, uh, uh, I think collectively now with, with the post-COVID, let's call it the recovery with, with balance sheet repair, both at a state and a federal level, I think it's, it's just a matter of, 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 of 
of uh, when, not sort of if those recycling programs that Nick's talked about will happen. And, and bearing in mind some of the industry funds, you know, uh, obviously have great appetite for unlisted infrastructure. And so, you know, I think it could only be described as it'll be highly bipartisan in terms of the support for that. That And you, you're seeing some of the language coming out of Convey and IFM and similarly the SMSFS um, the crew that you know, have even approached Nicole for, for, a, for, a, for a, her views recently. So there's no question it'll happen. Um, I think, you know, it'll be a post-COVID 2021 uh, issue and, and there will be opportunities, absolutely. Okay, thank you. I've got a, another question from Stuart here. What assumptions are you using for long-term interest rates and inflation? So in, in terms of the, the underlying cost of equity, so they, they vary down at, at obviously at the asset level, um, but in terms of the, the, the actual underlying cost of capital buildup, the, the valuers take the 10-year bond rate, um, so in terms of building up the, the cost of capital, um, and they, they actually add a premium to, to that bond rate of, of whatever the spot is of, of circa 90, 90 basis points. Uh, wherever it is now, um, and they add a, a, so about a 200 basis point premium to, to that that um, that little rate in the context of the underlying um, building up the the equity discount rate for the airport, the regulated asset, the um, the the, uh, the the toll road, the port. So there is interestingly, um, uh, you know, not that I think we've got the issue facing us now, but there's no question there's a Quite a firewall built into the a, a sudden rate rise pr uh, profile within each of the underlying assets, and I think give you an example of that. We're like looking at airports in the, in the event of a of a sudden quick you know a, a dramatic turnaround in interest rates or, or an increase in interest rates. What what you'll see is the underlying growth rates at the within the cash flows will be will be typically increase to match those interest rate rises as they start flowing through the economy. And I, I think that's where IPF's interestingly poised. Again, we don't think interest rates are going to jump to, you know, in the near term, but it, it, was a, it was a question early last year. And I think what you see with some of the GDP-linked assets is they, they're almost hanging around the hoop for that increase because that increased activity allows them to respond very quickly through the growth and underlying cash flows. So, so that's broadly sort of my response on, you know, each interest rate, the blended, you know, the cost of debt would be different across varying assets. Either the regulated assets have got, in some cases, sort of, you know, 70, 80% gearing because they're regulated and predictable um, and they are regulated in five-year regulatory blocks. Um, and in the case of, say, an airport, you've got uh, gearing levels of circa 40 to 45 percent. So, so it's all different depending on the quality, the underlying, uh, I guess, the underlying volatility of the cash flows. Great, thank you very much. Just um, on renewable infrastructure, is there any in the portfolio at the moment? You've frozen there. Sorry, it was if the question was, is there any renewable um, uh, infrastructure in the portfolio? 
And the answer is um, renewable actual sort of wind farms specifically or, or um, you know, fugitive emission abatement or, or so on. So or solar, solar farms, the answer is no. Um, but what, what we do have is, uh, so, so what, we, what we do have is, is a very strong, um, I guess, a facilitation role in terms of unlocking those renewable energy assets. Uh, if you think about South, South Australia, so that's got an extraordinary um, high level of, of wind uh, invested resource. Um, and the interconnector between Electronet or South Australia and New South Wales to facilitate the transfer of that renewable energy will come through our investment in Interconnect, which is the, the interconnector uh, to facilitate that. So we see that as our, our version of, of, of facilitating the you know, our renewable, uh, I guess, our touch point. From our perspective, we, we've looked at a few renewable um, projects. Uh, we've looked at some solar, we've looked at some wind. We're not quite yet comfortable with the, with the regulatory risk that's wrapped around uh, with some of those, some of those uh, opportunities. There's no question that over time that, will, that process will mature uh, and, and so on, but we think there's some better value uh, elsewhere, but we've obviously got a, a very keen eye for, for looking at um, looking at some of those those uh, those regular those renewable uh, investments. And I think just to add to Jonathan's point there, those comments probably relate more to the domestic market on in terms of the view and uncertainty around some of those risks in regulated opportunities. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Thank you very much. So my internet seems to be dropping out a little bit. Um, just one last question for me. Can you explain your process of allocating between the under the underlying fund managers and how you intend to change these relative weightings over time? Yeah, it's a good question because we are dealing with uh, open-ended, illiquid funds that you don't always accept our money when we when we have it. So there's, we work towards what we call a model portfolio, which is essentially our desired allocation of these underlying managers based on the asset base and structuring a optimal, optimal mix between regulated assets such as the utilities uh, and GDP growth linked assets such as the airports and seaports, for example. Um, and then we try and match that as best we can with deployment opportunities in those funds. Uh, sometimes it requires us, us to over allocate to those managers at times because there might not be another opportunity within a six to 12 month period to get set. Um, and, and obviously that, you know, balances down as, as more inflows come in. So it's not an exact science in this space. We have to be a little bit opportunistic, but we do try and work towards a model portfolio. Well, well, thank you very much, um, and, unless anyone's no, no more questions there. Thank you very much, Jonathan and Nicole, for your time today and, um, and for everyone attending at home. If you have any further questions you know, or, or would like more information on IPIF, please feel free to contact us and we'll be happy to, to provide you with this. And please also keep an eye out for another invitation that we'll be going out next week for our next fund manager webinar, which will be later next month. Um, so yeah, thank, thank you again for listening and um, uh, enjoy, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for thank the opportunity you. guys. Bye-bye.
Sila dong.